We've almost completed our Colossians series. We'll do that next Lord's Day. Uh, today we find ourselves at the end of, of chapter 3 and the very beginning of chapter 4. And I hope you'll turn in your ESV Bible or find your bulletin insert as we'll use this as a unison reading together. Let us read the Word of God together. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is sort of a famous illustration among preacher types. You can find this in one of Oswald Sanders' books where he speaks of the results of two families in New York State who were studied extensively generation after generation after generation. One involved Max Jukes, who was a man who was an unbeliever, and he married a a woman of similar character. And among their known descendants, more than 1,200 people were studied. And of those, 310 became professional vagrants. 440 physically wrecked their lives due to immorality. 130 were sent to prison for an average of 13 years each. Seven for murder. Over 100 became alcoholics. 60 became habitual thieves. 190 were prostitutes. And of the 20 who learned a trade out of more than 1,200 people, 10 learned that trade because of state prison. Now in about the same time period as Max Jukes, the family of Jonathan Edwards came on the scene, who was a man of God, and he married a woman of similar character. And they eventually became part of this study. Over several generations, 300 of their descendants became pastors, missionaries, or theological professors. More than 100 became university professors. 
More than 100 became attorneys, 30 of which were judges. More than 60 became physicians. And about that same number were authors, many of whom wrote classical books. Fourteen became presidents of universities. And there were numerous successes in American industry from this one original marriage of Jonathan Edwards and his wife. And three became U.S. congressmen, and one became a vice president of the United States. Now you hear something like that and you think, well, what kind of conclusions are we to draw from a study like that? I don't know all of them. But I know one conclusion we can draw. If you study the book of Proverbs carefully, you will see that the teaching in that book assumes that the home and not the place of worship but rather the home is the primary place of moral formation and social and civic duty. For example, in Proverbs 4.3 we can read, When I was a son with my father, he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. This Father is taking very seriously his responsibility to teach his son in the home. Because after all, as parents, those are our ultimate responsibilities. Teaching our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. And what we need to understand is that the home becomes even more important as the center of Christian nurture and education when the surrounding culture is so worldly that it accepts and even promotes a way of life that is opposed to the will of God. Now this passage before us this morning affirms among other things, that the family is the primary environment for forming one's faith and for living out that faith day in and day out. Paul is, in essence, making the point that how we live in our families week in and week out says a great deal about our faith. And you need to understand that what we have before us in this passage this morning is what scholars would refer to as household tables. Uh, You see these kinds of household tables in the New Testament every great now and then where husbands and wives, where parents, where masters and slaves are spoken to. And this would have been a common thing in Paul's day and time because the Greek philosophers always had household tables in their writings. But what they were uh, concerned with in those household tables were speaking primarily to those in authority, to, to husbands, to fathers, to masters about how they were to use and exercise that authority in their daily lives. And so we need to understand how different Paul's instructions were in this set of household tables to what people were used to seeing in that day and time. 
Paul comes along using the same categories as the Greeks, except his instructions are totally different. Paul stresses the lordship of Jesus Christ. And he stresses how that lordship of Christ permeates the lives of Christians and affects who they are and what they do. And we come to see in his teaching that all members of the household had not just responsibilities, but rights. Paul emphasizing that living one's faith under the lordship of Christ means that the local family becomes a community of mutual concern and encouragement and support and love just like the church that he talked about in last week's passage. Now, at first glance, you may think, why do we need to preach a passage like this where so much of it obviously no longer applies because thankfully we don't have masters and slaves in our society today. But with a text like this, you always have to look at the the principles undergirding what it is that, that Paul or the particular biblical writer is teaching. And these principles having to do in this text with submission, with love, with obedience, with fairness and justice, with a a conscientious work ethic are surely pertinent today just as they were in Paul's day and time. And with that in mind, we're going to spend our time this morning talking about applications for daily living based upon the principles and concepts that we see Paul talking about in this particular passage. And the first we might mention is that the instructions Paul gives show, as as one commentator put it, a special concern for the weaker or powerless members of each pair. In this case, the wives, the children, the slaves. Now, we know what Paul has already said about the gospel and its effect upon Christians in Galatians 3. When he writes, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. It's easy to see from those words that this gospel and this faith and that Christ is concerned to to protect each other's rights as opposed to enforcing subordination. I want us to stop long enough to realize that you and I I don't think in the 21st century can in no way begin to understand what kind of effect the gospel was having on people's lives in Paul's day and time, but it was beginning to change things. And Paul's concern is that as Christian people, we live the freedom we've been given in Christ, and yet at the same time, we still have to be a good witness to the world around us that doesn't understand that freedom. 
That's one reason Paul wouldn't be, you know, talking about we need to get rid of slavery. He's worried about the gospel message and how that gospel message can come across to a world that is imperfect, just like you and I have to be concerned about the same things. And this is why Paul begins where he does, with the wife and the husband first, the nuclear family. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is very close to what we see in Ephesians 5 and the teaching Paul gives there, except in Ephesians 5, it's much expanded. In telling wives to submit, you know, I know that our women today read that and think that Paul is really giving you a hard time, but what you need to understand is that he's not saying that wives are inferior in the relationship. Rather, he's stressing a cooperative attitude that puts others First, that's what submission is all about. You're putting the needs of someone else before your own. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, submit to one another. Before he he begins all of that teaching to husbands and wives, he says submit to one another as if you're submitting to Jesus Christ. And this cooperative attitude that puts others first is something that all Christians are to have. Not just wives. And we know that because of the teaching that Jesus gives us in Mark 10 when He's talking to His disciples about leadership and power and authority and how that is used or not used in daily living. And he says, you know that those who are supposed to rule over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so with you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you, must be slave of all. Now Paul takes that principle that Jesus teaches there in Mark 10 and he he kind of gives another set of words to it in Philippians 2, the same principle, where he says, Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he points to the example of Jesus Himself, who emptied Himself and took the form of a servant in those wonderful words we call the Christ hymn there in verses 5 through 11 of Philippians 2. Now, to the husbands in this text, Paul is basically saying you're not to take advantage of what society gives you in the marital relationship because society doesn't know what they're talking about. You must remember that Jesus is Lord. And you have to remember how Jesus loved you. And then love your wives in the same way. 
And, and, and this word love that's translated in our English Bibles as love is a form of the word agape, which as many of you, if you've sat in Sunday school classes through the year, know that that's the strongest form of love in the Greek language. That's the kind of love that is self-sacrificial. It's the kind of love that's unconditional. It's the kind of love that God had for you and me and for this whole world. For God so loved the world, that's agape, that He gave His only begotten Son. If anything... And I tell young men this all the time in premarital counseling. The guy has the harder road to hoe in the marital relationship because as Paul expands it in Ephesians 5, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ did. Love the church as Christ gave himself up for the church. So that's the attitude that every husband is to take into his household every day that he's willing to lay his life on the line for his wife. That's the kind of love that Paul's talking about here. And this brings us to the next application, which is the fact that that Jesus, as Lord, affects everything about who we are and what we do. The Greek word for Lord, kyrios, or some form of it, is seven times in this short passage. I think the English Bibles only has it in there six times, but it's in there seven times in the Greek because I counted it. It's like Paul is saying over and over, you've got to make sure you see what's going on here. Everything I'm talking about is tied directly to the fact that Jesus is Lord and King and Master of your life. And He's calling you to live a certain way. So the Lordship of Christ imposes itself upon all aspects of our lives. Our our marital relationship with the nurturing of our children, with our relationships at work, in the neighborhood, wherever we are. Yes, we are free in Jesus Christ, but part of this living freedom each day is learning to express ourselves according to the pattern which we see in Jesus. And in Jesus, we see a regard over and over again, not for self, but a regard for others and serving others. This is what Jesus Himself teaches in John 13 when He he washes the disciples' feet. If you remember that passage, when He brings that drama to a conclusion in that upper room, this is what he says to his disciples. Do you know? Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you are right. For that's what I am. If I then, your Lord, your Master, your King... If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that I should also, that you should also do as I have done unto you. Now let me ask you something, and I ask this question seriously, not facetiously, because I know some traditions 
use foot washing, and I'm not saying that's wrong. But I am going to ask the question, do you think Jesus is concerned that all his disciples have clean feet? Is that what he's teaching in this passage? That's not what he's teaching. He's teaching that you and I have to have the attitude that he had, the kind of love he had in his heart, that he's willing to take the lowest position available And he's willing to do that at any time. Whether it's in the home, whether it's at church, whether it's in the workplace, wherever. That's what he's teaching. Now please know that it's next to impossible for us to imitate Jesus in this and live this kind of life unless we have some kind of understanding of what He has done for us. I mean, we're, we shouldn't be willing to lower ourselves for other people and in humility count others better than ourselves unless we understand that's exactly what God has done for us in the gift of Jesus, that He lowered Himself, that He lived a perfect life on this earth, did not deserve death, and yet He was willing to go to the cross for your sins and my sins because you and I are imperfect and we do deserve death. And we continue to fail the people we love most each and every day. And the Apostle John understands the logic of this. That's why he says in his first letter, the fourth chapter, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see, as we realize what Jesus has done for us, then we can treat others and try to treat them in the same way. You see, the way in which you choose to answer that question of how God has loved you is how you live in the relationships around you. If this Jesus, who is Lord, has saved you and saved me, we can't help but follow His example and His call on our lives and seek to give as He gave and as He continues to give. And this leads us to the third application. If we follow a master who was willing to become a slave, then obviously lording it over others is prohibited. That's exactly what Jesus teaches in Mark 10. You know, if you're going to be a part of my church, this lording it over like you see out there in the world is not supposed to be who you are and how you act and how you live. In fact, the New Testament has definite views on how power is to be used within relationships And this text speaks to that before us this morning because each set of instructions given here by Paul addresses the use of power by the perceived dominant partner or person in the relationship. And he forbids any injustice, any exploitation, 
any mistreatment, any kind of taking advantage of the other. This is why we read words in this text like, Husbands, love your wives and and do not be harsh to them. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly. We live like this and, and treat others like this because of what Christ has done for us and how He continues to work in our lives through the power of His Holy Spirit. You know, a textbook example, if you want to look at this, being lived out is that small letter in the New Testament called Philemon. You remember the the reason for that letter in the first place? The slave Onesimus has run away from his master Philemon. And Paul is is coming to Onesimus' rescue in that letter. He's basically saying to Philemon, yeah, I know he's not perfect. I know he's done some wrong things. But if, if he's stolen anything from you, I'll pay for it. You need to take this man back. Because why? Because he deserves it? No, because he's a brother in the Lord. Because he calls Jesus Lord just like you do. It's all about the Lordship of Christ in our lives and whether that Lordship rules or not. And while Jesus is the chief model of this servanthood leadership. I mean, let's admit it, that's what we've been talking about here today. Servanthood leadership within the life of the household each and every day. Jesus is the chief model. We know that. We know that from Philippians 2. We know it from John 13. We know it from Mark 10 and the teaching he gives us. But we know that Paul, the Apostle Paul, modeled this type of life as well. This same Paul, who in so many of his letters is is making sure these people understand that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ and he has as much authority as anyone. This same Paul is also the one who in his dealing with various churches he founded across the Roman Empire assumes the role of their spiritual father. Now, what kind of father is he? That's what we need to do is to take a look at Paul's letters and say what kind of father was he really? Was he harsh with his children? Or did he love them and serve them? As a father, he did not lord it over them as he says in so many words in 2 Corinthians 1. But rather, many times he acted as a mother, as we see in 1 Corinthians 3 and Galatians 4. He even goes so far as to liken himself to a wet nurse in 1 Thessalonians 2 and as a slave, calls himself a slave in 2 Corinthians 4. You see, Paul understood the teaching of Jesus very well. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Can you imagine our society saying that today? Whoever's going to be number one in America, you've got to be slave of everybody. 
Do you hear the world teaching that? It's completely the opposite. If you're going to be number one, you've got to run over everybody to get there. You've got to run over ten. You've got to run over number eight. You've got to run over number seven and six and five right down the line to make it to number one. Paul understands what Jesus is saying. The lordship of Jesus must affect who we are and how we live, not only in the church, but in the family. And that's why Paul deals with this. In this text, he's been talking about the supremacy of Christ all the way through this letter of Colossians. And he's saying it doesn't just have to do with the church. It has to do with your house every single day. And that's why the sermon title asks a very important question. What does your family life say about your faith? You know, I doubt if there's going to be any kind of study on your descendants or my descendants like we saw with Max Jukes and Jonathan Edwards. I doubt if people are going to look at our children and our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, and and go back and say, well, you can see what they did in that home. But it doesn't matter if there's not a study because we know that God is concerned about how we live and how we lead and the example we give, the role model that we are in our homes each and every day. With all of that in mind, what does your family life have to say about your faith? Will you one day hear, well done, good and faithful, you remember what word comes next? Servant. Servant. May God bless us to that end, to hear those words to His honor and glory. Amen. Amen.